0: This morning, we will be in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. We'll read all the way through verse 16 together. And if you don't have a Bible or are new to the Bible, that's okay. If you didn't manage to grab a Bible in the transition, raise your hand. We'll have an usher grab a Bible for you. Or you can go onto your phone's browser and you can type in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. And we'll be reading from the ESV version this morning, English Standard Version. Open that up and I'll do the rest. And now, for the past couple of weeks, we've been celebrating, we've been challenged by, and we've been called to eagerly maintain the unity of the church. We've been been hearing that we are one, so let us enjoy it together. We are one, so let us strive against what divides us. We are one. So let us invite our neighbors into the blessed family that is the church. And this morning, we're, we're still wave, waving the same banner, but as we consider yet again that we are one, Paul reminds us, important here, that we are not the same. We are one, but we are not the same. For in the unity of the church, a wonderful diversity remains. And it's a biblical diversity that doesn't divide, but it only further unites. And so without further ado, let's draw our attention together to this diversity and the amazing way in which the risen Christ, the Lord and head of the church, is working in and through it to build his church. And as we do, let's actually back up to verse 4 in our Bible so we can get the, the context and the flavor, and we can see the important development that Paul makes in his discussion of the church's unity, and we'll read through verse 16 together. So beginning in verse 4, let's read God's word to us. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us. the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children in love, these are God's words. We need the help of God's Spirit. Would you join me in prayer? Oh Lord, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you, and even as we already prayed, we have much to thank you for. We thank you even that we are here outside, listening to these words being read to us, and we ask that Lord you would help our hearts and our minds to uh, turn back to you. That you would redirect and redraw our attention and focus, that we might hear this morning what you have to speak to us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fill me, that I might hold out Christ, the Savior, the head of the church, and that from these pages we might see him afresh this morning, that we might believe in him and trust in him afresh, or for the very first time, and that we might glorify him and stake our confidence in him and be assured in what he is doing in and among us and be happy that we are his people. So would you help us to understand? Would you help us to receive? Would you help us to believe this morning? For the glory of your name and for the good of our souls, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are one, but we are not the same. As we read, there is blessed unity, but not boring uniformity in the church. And in verse four through six of chapter four, Paul, he celebrated seven ones that all believers have in common, the amazing realities that form the foundation of our unity. Now, beginning in verse 7 of chapter 4, he draws our attention to the diversity of gifts that each one of us has been given for the purpose of the upbuilding of the church. So why does he do this? Well, because he wants us to understand the way that the risen Christ, the head of the church, has purpose to maintain and to strengthen and to protect our unity. He wants us to see that the way he wants to do that is through our diversity. And now, far from these two aspects of the church being at odds, our unity and our diversity, we see here that they're actually, they're complementary. They're mutually reinforcing. What we see in verses 7, or excuse me, 7 through 16, is that diversity, it strengthens the unity of the church. Diversity strengthens the unity of the church and all the different and varied and numerous gifts of grace that we've been given serve the one singular goal of helping our church grow toward maturity. That's what's going on here. That's the point. Diversity strengthens our unity by promoting the maturity of the body of Christ. Diversity strengthens our unity by promoting our maturity. And now, drawing from the metaphor of the body, one of the greatest illustrations of unity and diversity that it ever has been, right? (laughs) We know that a body, a human body, our body, cannot function the way it's designed without all its unique members doing their part. That working together is essential to healthy functioning. If we all had all feet and no hands, That wouldn't work. <laughs> if we had three mouths but no ears, that wouldn't make sense. If we had one great mouth but no tongue to speak, <laughs> we wouldn't be healthy, functioning, right, as as designed. We just couldn't do what we were designed to do. It wouldn't work. And the church is the body of Christ. And and bodies, they need all their members working together to promote their good and to promote their growth. This is the, the plain teaching of our text this morning. And it's a concept a lot of us might be already familiar with. But that's not all that's going on in our passage today. Yes, Paul is stating that in this way, through the diversity of gifts given in the church, through the diversity of members that he has gathered to himself, Christ will build up his church. But the way that he goes about stating it, it seems like, to me at least, it's meant to beg the question. Okay, he's going to work in this way, but how do we know that it'll work? How do we know that it will work? I say this because of what might seem to be like an odd detour that we encounter in this passage on our way from diversity, back in verse 7, to maturity in verses 11 through 16. We take an odd detour in the middle that I want to camp on for a moment here. And Paul, I argue, that he takes this detour to ground our confidence in the reality that the church will really work the way Christ designed it. That we, Cross of Grace Church, really will grow and progress and reach maturity despite our our doubts that we might do so, despite our weaknesses, despite our ongoing experience of immaturity, imperfection, and the inability that we have to change ourselves by ourselves. We know we can't cause the growth. Only God can bring the growth. Paul takes this detour to show us that Christ's way, and not the world's way, or even our own ways and ideas, um, Christ's way of pursuing unity, of doing unity, of being one and united is the best way. No other way works the way his way does. You see, this morning, Paul takes us on this detour to convince us that we don't need to rethink church. Right, In the air quotes there, as is suggested every couple of years, if you follow along you know things on the internet and people talking about church and mission and adapting to the current culture today, we have to rethink church every couple of years and reinvent who we are and how we worship and how we live and what we teach and the mission we have. We have to rethink and accommodate and adjust to stay relevant, to make it in the 21st century world in which the church is now positioned. See, Paul, he takes us down this path from diversity to maturity, this particular path, in order to tell us that we don't need to do that. (laughs) We don't need to rethink church. We don't need to readjust. He takes us down this path, not just to tell us that Christ will build his church, but to prove to us that his purposes for his people are unstoppable. That's why he takes the path he goes down. From the familiar starting point to the familiar destination, he takes this detour to prove something To us. And he does this this morning by pulling us aside and drawing our attention to the giver of the gifts before saying anything more about the gifts that he's given. He wants us to be convinced that we will be built up by these gifts and in this way because of the Christ who is doing the building. He wants to convince us that we won't fail to be built up because Christ won't fail to build us. We won't fail to be built up because Christ won't fail to build us. And now, this is the, the upshot of the unexpected theological excursion, we'll call it, of, of verses 8 through 10. An unanticipated route to a familiar destination, highlighting a particular and often neglected aspect of Christ's work. He takes us down this path, this route. Um, and highlights this aspect of Christ's work in order to strengthen our faith and our confidence that the church with a capital C and our church Cross of Grace will assuredly arrive at the end goal that Christ has in mind for us. However, imperfect and in progress we are now. We will grow. We will mature and Christ will advance his kingdom, work out his purposes and make us more and more into the kind of people who live together in his infinite and unstoppable love. Nothing can stand in his way because of who Jesus is. And this is the first stop on our journey toward maturity. Beginning here, we'll enter into our first of three points that will guide the rest of our time together. We turn our attention to the giver. The giver in verses 8 through 10. Verses 8 through 10 tells us that the provider of the gifts is the descended and conquering Christ And as we enter into this, we back up to verse 7 to return where we began and be reminded that we are all one, as Paul has labored to demonstrate to us. But, verse 7, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. That is, as one scholar says, we have each, all of us in the church, if you're a Christian, have received grace, the privilege of a special calling in service to God. Paul begins. This passage by saying that within the unity of the church, there does exist a diversity of gifts that have been given to us by the risen Christ, the exalted Lord and Head of the Church. And so this morning, if you're a Christian, you have a gift. I and mean, then I'm not, not going to give you all a spiritual gifts inventory to take at the end of the sermon, but you have a gift. If you are a Christian, the ch- risen Christ has given each one of us a gift. No one Paul says, has been left out of the distribution. Everyone is given a gift so that everyone can play their part in strengthening our unity and in our progress toward maturity. Every Christian has a gift because Christ intends to engage all of his people as instruments of grace in each other's lives. That's true for you this morning if you are a Christian. He intends to use you and the gifts he's given to you for our good. One commentator says, in his wisdom, and to make each dependent on others, God has ordained not uniformity, but an endless variety of gifts for members of the body. Or as John Calvin puts it, no member of the body of Christ is endowed with such perfection as to be able, without the assistance of others, to supply his own necessities. (laughs) In other words, Calvin says, we need each other. God set it up that way. That's why he's given us Gifts and grace to give to one another. This is how he's designed the body to be. Christ has given us all a gift. And what's more, and where it begins to turn and get interesting, we're heading down the path of our excursion here. Christ has given us each a gift, and the text tells us that these gifts are the spoils of war. (laughs) These gifts are the spoils of war. Here's where it gets interesting. Paul tells us that these gifts were given to the church by Christ. Look at verse 8. When he ascended on high, and he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And here he's quoting from Psalm 68, verse 18, and he's signaling to us that what David had described back then in Psalm 68 has been now ultimately realized in what has taken place in the relationship between Christ and his church. That when he ascended on high to the right hand of the Father in heaven, like we read back in chapter 1, after dying for our sin, and then rising victorious over the grave, the sin that brought on the curse of death and the devil that had the power over death, he conquered these things. And when he did this, he led a host of captives and he give, gave gifts to men. So in his death, his burial, his as we'll read descent, resurrection, and ascension, Christ has gone through this whole work and given us a gift at the end of it, and it's a gift that's a spoil of war. And Paul, he cites this psalm, Psalm 68 here, to help us grasp the the, the wonder, the the nature, and the extent of Christ's victorious work. That's what he's doing here in verse 8. And so we ask the question, and we could say a lot about this, but I'll try not to say too much about this. You can ask me afterward more about, about this. But what's going on in Psalm 68? Why does Paul cite Psalm 68 here to prove his point? Was it just good language that he says, oh, that, 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 that works for what I want to say? Or is there something more in the backdrop, in the background of what's happening in that particular psalm that Paul is getting at? Well, this psalm, to summarize it a little bit, it, it celebrates Yahweh's victory, the God of Israel's victory over the enemies of his people, and it describes his triumphal procession back to his temple, the place of his reign on the earth. David begins the psalm by singing, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee from him. And then moving on in that psalm in verses 15 through 23 of Psalm 68, you can go read it this week and dive more into it. But we learn that in the psalm, the forces that God is marching against, okay, are the peoples and powers of Bashan. Dun, dun, dun. Bashan, right? You all know Bashan. Bashan, it's described as the mini-peaked mountain which is a symbol of strength in the old testament that looks with hatred at the mount of god and his desired uh, that the mountain that god has desired for his abode where the lord will dwell forever so there's a one mountain <laughs> that looks with animosity and hostility and hatred toward god's mountain two mountains are at war <laughs> and fighting here god and his people they're opposed in the psalm by powers that hate them. Powers that are adversarial, antithetical, and opposed to their very existence. The powers from, of Bashan, which verse 22 tells in Psalm 68, the powers from which the Lord will bring back his people. Now, stick with me on this. The captives that Yahweh leads in victorious procession in verse 18 are Israelites. He's freed from Bashan, okay? So he's defeating Bashan. He's freeing his people from the power of Bashan. So what's the deal with Bashan? What's so significant about it? Why is this place so hostile to God and his people? Well, it's because in the ancient world and in the mindset of the ancient Israelite, Bashan represented much more than a a physical region or threat to uh, Israel's existence. Not just a human threat, not just a national threat. The region of Bashan, okay, get ready for this. (laughs) Be sitting down. You already are. The region of Bashan, this is important, was considered to be (laughs) The gateway to the underworld, okay? Back in the Old Testament, back in the, <laughs> back in the psalm there. Why is this? What, what's the deal with Bashan, okay? It's the region in which, what do we know about it, Og, the giant king of Bashan, uh, that Israel defeated in the wilderness on the way to the promised land, he once reigned there, that giant guy who was fearsome and mighty in his day. It's a place which pastor and theologian Doug Van Dorn says is one of, listen to this, the largest burial fields on the planet, filled with uncounted thousands of dolmens, that is, large heaping burial mounds, some of which have capstones capstones weighing over 50 tons. This valley of death, he says, is truly stunning. So what is Bashan? It's a place east of the Jordan River, outside of the promised land, that was filled with giant peoples of old, It was filled with idolatry and worship of the ancestors who were deified as demigod kings and all this kind of awful worship and these awful rituals and these awful things that they would do and worship to these ancestors. And get this, serpent worship as well. What do we know about the serpent in the Bible? Bashan literally means the place of the serpent. And so here's this place where all kinds of dark and occultic and immoral practices are taking place. It's a mass graveyard. And it's a place of death characterized by rebellion against the true and living God. It's unholy ground, in other words, infused with dark power and supernatural undertones. That's what's going on in Psalm 68. And so here's the point. His conquest, Yahweh's conquest of Bashan in Psalm 68, is not just an earthly victory, but it's a spiritual one as well. It's a spiritual one. and well, David is singing the good news that God will defeat death for his people. He cries out in Psalm 68, verse 28, Blessed be the Lord, who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Our God is a God of salvation. And to God, the Lord, belong deliverances from death. He is the one who said, I will bring them back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea. He not only rescues his people in battle, but he will rescue them from the realm, from the abode, from the place of the dead. The power of death will not have its grip upon God's people. That's what's happening here in Psalm 68, that even death is not the end for those who trust in the Lord. And so this is in the background of what's happening in Psalm 68. Paul quotes it. um, For in Psalm 68, in verse 18, it says of Yahweh, You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts from men, even among the rebellious the Lord may dwell there. So in Psalm 68, God wins the battle and as victors do, he takes all the spoils of war, and it says that he receives gifts. Wait a minute, Paul says he gives gifts. <laughs> he receives gifts in Psalm 68, but then in Ephesians 4.8, he gives gifts. What's going on here? Is Paul uh, misquoting? Is he misunderstanding? And I don't think so. I think the idea is that in Psalm 68, Yahweh as the c- conquering king wins the battle, he takes the spoils, and he marches home. And in the ancient worlds, kings would not only take you know, the treasure, take the people, take the prisoners, take the spoils of war away from the enemies and march them back home to where they reign. But when they got there, what would they do? They would turn around and they would share it with their people. They would bless their people. They would bestow upon the people the riches of their victory. So Christ here, Paul says, is that fulfillment of what God would do to defeat not just physical enemies, but the very power of death to set his people free from slavery and fear to death, to give us hope in the face of death. Christ would come, he would conquer the forces of death and then bring us into that victory. And he would share out of the fullness of his victory with his people and that's where he'd give the gifts. That's where he'd give the gifts. And so this is what's happening here. This is what's going on in the context of this battle against Bashan. That Christ would save his people, and then those redeemed people, we'll get to this in a second point, he would turn around and give to the church for the good and the upbuilding of the church. So if you belong to Christ, you have been rescued from the clutches of death. You have been rescued from sin and the evil one, and now you've been reclaimed, repurposed to be useful, to be a blessing, to be beneficial to his redeemed people who have, you've, you've entered into new life with. That's what's happening here. This is what's going on with this battle against Bashan. And now, question Do you happen to know where Jesus was back in the Gospels when he said the gates of hell would not prevail against his church? Where do you think he was? He was in Bashan. Psalm 68 to Matthew 16 18, Jesus says, The gates of hell. Where we're standing in Bashan, this mass graveyard and place of death opposed to God will not prevail against the church. He was in Bashan then. So what is Paul doing now? Essentially, Ephesians 4:8 for Paul is saying along with Jesus. It's Paul's way of putting it that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. He's using this reference, this verse, to encourage the Ephesians then and us now that no matter how unimpressive, (laughs) how much in progress, how weak, how struggling, how still battling with sin we all might be, that nothing can stop Christ's purposes for us. If not even the gates of hell can prevail against us, then what could meaningfully stand in our way? That's what's going on here Christ has conquered the gates of hell. What will stop his purposes in his church from going forward in the world? And these gates won't stop us, friends, because Jesus stormed the gates himself. And this is where Paul's focus turns in verses 9 through 10, and this is where it gets even weirder. So let's keep going along this journey with Paul, all right? Verses 9 through 10. Paul says, Christ conquered death. Verse 9. And in saying he ascended... What does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. So here's the question. In what way did Christ storm the gates? Paul answers the question for us. In his descent, okay? In his descent, that's what we see in verses 9 through 10. The one who ascended on high as the victor over sin and death and hell, first descended to the place. Of the dead. That is, the human soul of Jesus went to, <laughs> this sound, sound, it might sound crazy, but it's in the scripture. It went to the underworld in between his death on the cross and his victorious resurrection. This is what Paul has in mind in verses 9 through 10, and he's fleshing out what he's getting at in quoting Psalm 68. He takes this detour to plunges into the, the, the main reason for our confidence that Christ uh, will not fail to build his church. And now, in our ESV translation, if you look at verse nine with me, it says that the one who ascended on high first descended into the regions, into lower regions, the earth. Um, The idea that our ESV is bringing out here is that Christ, in his incarnation, went from being in heaven and came down to earth. Um, But I, I would argue that there's a better translation of that verse than what we see in the ESV. Something more like, he descended into the lower parts of the earth, as opposed to the lower parts, the earth, meaning just the earth. But instead, he went to the lower parts of the earth, something further down below. And I say this because the Greek word that's underlying that terminology of lower regions is a word which means the lowest. It's a superlative. It means the lowest you can go. Paul doesn't just say he went down low, or even that he just went to the earth, because he could have just said that if he wanted to. But instead, he went to the lowest part of the earth and we could say a lot about this but in the ancient biblical mindset there was a sort of three-tiered understanding of how the world was there was the heavens where god dwelt there was the earth where we live and there was what was under the earth where the spirits go where everybody goes where's the place of the dead and the disembodied spirits of people good or bad and the place where the evil powers would be consigned to who were in rebellion against god there's three tiers to it paul's saying here jesus went to the lowest part creation, the lowest realm when he descended. He went to the lowest part, and this here, it plunges us, pun intended, (laughs) into the doctrine of Christ's descent, and we'll take a few minutes to try to unpack that, and then we'll move on, but Paul wants us to have this in our minds to build our confidence that nothing will stop Jesus and what he wants to do in and through us. The doctrine of Christ's descent, the unexpected and often neglected aspect of Christ's work for us, and so think of it this way, okay, if this helps you. <laughs> think of it like a cosmic bungee jump. I've never been bungee jumping and I never would go. It seems way too scary for me. But think of it like a cosmic bungee jump, okay? Christ is in heaven. God the Son, in the fellowship of the Trinity, has a plan to come and redeem a people for himself. He descends from heaven to earth in his incarnation. He dies upon the cross and continues going down. At death, his human soul is separated from his body. And then where does it go? but the place where all the dead go in the Old Testament. He goes to Sheol, or in what is in the Greek, Hades. Um, He goes to that place where the faithful of old have been waiting, where in a place called Abraham's bosom, we read this in Luke uh, chapter 16, where the unrighteous who have not trusted in the promises are in torment. We also see that in Luke 16, and where the Fallen angels, the evil spirits, those who have been opposed to God from of old, from the days of Noah until now, where they reside in the place of, of prison. Peter calls it Tartarus in Second Peter, grabbing a hold of the Greek mythological term, referencing the battle between the Olympians and the Titans. And a lot of, lot of fun stuff there, but he goes all the way down, okay? He bungees from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows, and then back up again in his resurrection and ascension. Why is this a big deal? (laughs) What is the upshot of this for us? Well, I want to give you four handles um, for thinking about this doctrine, and then we'll move on to our second point. But Christ, he bungees down to the lowest of the lows in the spirit before he's raised up from the grave, reunited to his body, glorious, imperishable, indestructible forever. But in that interim, he's down there. And listen, he doesn't go down there to suffer further. He's not doing more atonement work. It's not being punished. It's not taking on any further penalty. When he said it is finished on the cross, it's true. But he goes down below, not to suffer more, but actually to immediately turn around and to apply, to walk in his victory, to take a victory lap, if you will, after his conquest upon the cross, on his way back up again so that we all might be encouraged, made confident. And listen to this. Four things, okay, that are accomplished that we need to know about in the descent of Christ. Number one, he descended to the lower parts of the earth to set free the prisoners of hope. And you can write down Zechariah 9, 9 through 16 here. We don't have time to read it all, but basically here's the idea. If you're an Old Testament saint and you die in faith, where do you go? You go down there, where all the dead go. We might think we go to the immediate presence of God in heaven, But that did not occur until Christ came, until he, as the perfect man, descended to the place of the dead, and then as man, brought man back up to God. No one, in other words, went to heaven, as we think about it now, until Christ was there. So what does he do? He descends to Abraham's bosom in the place of the dead in Sheol to free the captives, to free those who have been longing and waiting for the day in which they will be delivered from death. They're being comforted, yes, but they're not with God and they long to be with God. And so he comes that all who have trusted in him from of old might enter into that immediate presence of God and be comforted and find joy. He goes to set free the captives of hope and he opens heaven for his people so that when we die, we don't go to some waiting room. (laughs) We go right into the immediate presence of God and enter into his joy and his rest forevermore. Second reason, Christ descends to take the keys of death and Hades. You can write down Revelation 1 17 through 18. I'll read this one. Jesus speaking to the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 1, he says, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys to death and Hades. What do keys do? They open things. <laughs> if you have the keys, you are in control. You are possessing. You have, in the the scriptural mindset, you have authority as you wield the keys. And so Hebrews 2 verses 14 and 15 tells us that through death and the full experience of death that Christ endured for us, Jesus destroyed the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, in order to deliver all those, and I don't know who this wouldn't include, all those who through fear of death we subject to lifelong slavery, fearing what might happen after this life. Jesus went down. He tasted death in the fullest possible sense to defeat the one who had the power over death. He went down so that the God of this world, the devil, who once possessed the keys of death and Hades, would be, would be bound. Just like he began in his ministry. He's binding the strong man. He's going down there after the cross where he's bested him to finish the job. He goes to bind the strong man fully and finally, he's subdued by Christ, starting in his earthly ministry, climaxing in his death, and now culminating in his descent, where, quoting author Sam Rinehan, Christ entered into, quote, the lair of the serpent <laughs> to crush his skull in the sight of every wicked angel and unbelieving soul, okay? So when the bad guys see <laughs> demonstrably before them their leader has been defeated, what does that signal to them? The jig is up. We cannot oppose God. We have been defeated. We have been conquered. We have been bested. Christ is Lord. He is the conqueror. He is the Lord of the living and the dead. Christ bungeed down. He grabbed the keys at the bottom. That is the power and authority over death. And he proved by his own resurrection that he was the Lord of all, the living and the dead, so that his people don't have to fear death because he is the Lord of the living and the dead even as we die, we know we, we sleep, right? And we go to be with him, and we have hope in a future where death is not the end, but life is where we're headed. Third reason, he went down to, and we already alluded to it, to proclaim his victory over the powers of darkness that is the spirits now in prison. 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. Be short about this one. Jesus descends, Not to proclaim a second chance, not to share the gospel and say, hey, come on, you didn't believe it before, you rejected me before, but here's a new chance for you. It's not about that. He descends to take a, a victory lap, if you will, to proclaim to the hostile spiritual forces that have been erased and opposed to God from the days of Noah until now. He goes down there in the Spirit to tell them that their plan to oppose God's purposes to glorify himself had fully and finally failed in the crucifixion of Christ. For far from that being his defeat upon the cross, it was actually the occasion of his victory over the sin which brought brought upon his people's death and drew the accusations of the devil. So he goes down there to say, you failed. You thought that this might have been it in my death, but actually my death was the nail in your coffin. I have defeated every power uh, arrayed against me. You have lost. You have lost. And finally, in our text, Paul gives us one more reason. He descends. He descends, number four, to fill all things. This is verse 10. To fill all things, that is all places, every part of the created realm, heaven and earth and under the earth, with his glory. He's been, like the song, he's been everywhere, man. He has been everywhere, heaven, earth, and under the earth. And he has filled every place he's been with his glory, with his lordship, with his kingship. He is the Lord of all who, as Paul writes in verse 23 of chapter 1, he is the Lord of all who fills all in all. Every realm, every square inch of the creation, all that is seen and unseen, it belongs to Christ. That means us, we belong to Christ. And we exist for his glory. That's what's going on here in Ephesians chapter 4. That's the point of Paul's digression. That this Christ the one who is Lord of all, who has been everywhere and filled it with his glory. This Christ has given gifts to men, and this Christ is the one who is in and involved with and committed to the progress and the growth and the maturity of his people. So the question becomes, if that's who he is, how could he fail to accomplish his purposes in us? Is there anything that can stand in the way of his intentions for us? No if not even the gates of hell could prevail against him, what can stop Jesus from doing what he wants to do? Namely, what can stop Jesus from taking us, the redeemed sinners that we are, and growing us, maturing us, binding us more closely together in unity and love, and changing us in ways that we know we just can't do on our own? What can stop him from doing that? Nothing. Nothing can stop him. What a Savior we have in Jesus, who has tasted death in the fullest sense to lead us into this kind of unstoppable life. And what a savior he is for those who right now haven't received this life. If you haven't, he, he offers it to you. He is the Lord of death and life. He has the keys. He welcomes those who are living in fear of death and what's to come. He welcomes those to receive him, to receive his perfect sacrifice on the cross, to receive his victorious resurrection by faith, trusting that Jesus has done everything that needs to be done to take away our sin that leads to that death, and to bring us into life forevermore. And he calls you this morning, if you've never received him, to receive him, to trust in him, to receive the life that he is uniquely qualified and only able to offer you. Receive him today. Receive this Christ, who is the good Lord of the church. So Paul, in our first point, has proven that the giver of the gifts to the church, he's the Lord of all things who has conquered all, and who has given grace to his people to walk in the newness of life that we've been called to live and to welcome others into doing the same. <laughs> point number one, we did it. Thanks for taking a deep dive with me today. We'll be briefer in the last two as we finish out because we see that after the digression of verses 9 through 10, after Paul's excursion, uh, to exp- he goes on to explain what the gifts are and what the purpose uh, that they've been given for is. Brings us to our second point. We'll be quick here. We turn to the gifts, from the giver to the gifts. Verse 11, we see that the conquering Christ, he gives, get this, people to his people. Heard this earlier, he ransoms, right? Uh, He redeems the captives, and then he repurposes sinners to be servants of his people. That's what he's doing with all of us. He gives people to his people. Verse 11 begins one long sentence in the Greek that goes all the way through the end of verse 16. and. In it, we see that the ascended Christ, he gives people to his people. He gives people for the upbuilding of his people. And here we see that the gifts in verse 11, primarily in focus now, are gifted people. Scholar F.F. Bruce says, Those that are named here exercise their ministries in such a way as to help other members of the church exercise their own respective ministries. So, four categories of gifted people that are named. We'll define them one by one uh, briefly. First, he says that Christ gave the apostles, the apostles, that is the authoritative apostles, those who had beheld the risen Christ, who, as we heard back in Ephesians chapter 2, laid the foundation of the church as they passed on the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. Scholar Doug Moo uh, defines the apostles as those specifically chosen men who had seen Christ, had the authority to establish the new covenant norms, and whose writings have been preserved for us in the scriptures, like we're reading Paul this morning. Jesus gave them to us, church, so that we wouldn't be relaying the foundation of the church from generation to generation. We don't have to keep going back and relaying that foundation. We don't reinvent the wheel, but we can be anchored to this ancient faith, once for all handed down. Our mission is not to do anything new, not to introduce anything novel, not to change anything. Our mission as a church and as a people is to celebrate and to pass down the same faith the apostles have given to us. Not to reinvent, not to redefine, or to add anything new to what we've received. It's just to celebrate what's always been true. He gives the apostles to give us that truth so that we're not... Constantly seeking it out, searching for it, and trying to figure it out from age to age. Second, he gives the prophets. He gives the New Testament prophets of the church um, who work together with the apostles we see in chapter 2 of Ephesians to lay the foundation of the church. Prophets given by God to interpret and to explain uh, the apostles' eyewitness testimony and their teaching, and given to the church to guard us to keep us from departing from the gospel that we've received. He gives these prophets to do that kind of work in that early founding generation of the church to keep us on track, to help us understand the apostles' testimony and to help us hold fast to it. And in our day, though not in quite the same way as there's prophets who are giving back then new normative revelation, we have prophets now. We have those now among us who have been given the gift of prophecy to help us do what? Hold fast. To that gospel, stand firm upon it, to take particular aspects of God's gospel and his word and receive them as words from him into our lives. As often as Angie comes up and shares a word from the Lord or any of us have a spontaneous word he gives to us, the purpose that God has for those prophets is to help us stand more firmly on the foundation we have in Christ through his gospel. He gives the prophets to us for our good. Next, he gives the evangelists. And listen here, I want to qualify this one before I say anything further. Though evangelism is a spiritual discipline for all Christians and not a spiritual gift just for some Christians, no one's off the hook for evangelism, church. (laughs) There are certain individuals who are given to the church who are particularly gifted, uh, not only in evangelizing others, but in equipping others to do the same. These are the evangelists that Paul is talking about here. Those who are gifted, especially at preaching the gospel to unbelievers, taking the gospel to new places and new contexts, and to helping others within the church, other members, to do the same thing. The Great Commission is a commission for all of us, not just for a few of us. But evangelists help lead the way in equipping the church to step into mission together. Last, the shepherd teachers are. Chapter here says the shepherds and teachers. Really, this is one idea. There's just one definite article, one word, the, that governs both of them in the Greek. So we take them together because they're really two words describing one office. And that's the office of the, the elder, the overseer, the pastor. Christ gives under shepherds to the church to exercise the care and the love and the protection of the chief shepherd, of himself. And so, commentator. Francis folks writes apostles and evangelists had a special task in planting the church in every place prophets were bringing a particular word from God to a situation pastors and teachers were gifted to be responsible for the day-to-day building up of the church and so these two words shepherd teacher they capture the essence of pastoral ministry leading the church that has been placed in the charge of pastors and in our charge and my charge and Kyle's charge and soon to be Jason's charge the chief thing's were to do is to shepherd and to teach, to exercise Christ's leadership over his people by means of bringing God's word and the truth of the gospel to bear upon the lives of the people he's given to us. Teaching according to what God has revealed in the gospel and in the scriptures, and not according to our own ideas or our own opinions, but what God has declared to be true. And so listen, Jesus, we saw through these four offices, though this is not an exhaustive list, we can see that He desires to work through these people, right? In our day, still today, 2,000 years later, he desires to work through these kinds of people, not influencers, not activists, not life coaches, not consultants, celebrity pastors, discernment bloggers, or anyone communicating to you through a screen, okay? He's given flesh and blood people as gifts of grace to his people to encourage, to upbuild, and to strengthen the unity and the maturity and the blessedness of our life together. He calls us all to receive these gifts as gifts to us and to not look elsewhere for the grace that he desires to give to his church. So when these gifted people go about their ministry and are well received by the people, it promotes the good of the church. And the particular good that Paul has in mind in verses 12 through 16 is the unity and the maturity of the church. This brings us to our final point, the goal of the gifts. Point number three, the goal of the gifts, verses 12 through 16. The goal of the gifts is growing toward maturity together. And the role of the gifted people in verse 11 is to train the church in general to serve according to the grace that they've been given, connecting the dots for us. And in this way, as those gifted people train the other people to use their gifts, the whole church together grows toward maturity. And we'll walk through these verses and make a couple comments. As we close out our time together today, we'll look at these verses 12 through 16 step by step to see what Christ intends to do and is already doing among us. He's given gifts uh, to us for the purposes of equipping the saints for ministry. We see this in verse 12. He gave these gifted people to do their part in equipping the whole church for the work of ministry. The role of these gifted people, one commentator says, is the bringing of the saints, that is the whole church, to a condition of fitness for the discharge of their functions in the body. The role of these gifted people is to help each of us, back in verse 7, to use the gift that we've been given for the good of the body of Christ. We've each been given a gift, verse 7. Verse 11, these gifted people equip us to use them well so that, verse 12, we all might be built up through our collective service in the different ways that we serve in the body. These gifts have been given to equip us to all do ministry together for the purpose, number two, of building up the body of Christ. Verse 12 carries on to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the purpose of the building up of the body of Christ. So that we would grow, progress, right? Mature. Um, growing up uh, as a body of Christ, verse 13, until we what? What are we growing up into? We all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. And that word in verse 13 for attain is actually used in the, in the book of Acts nine times to describe the end of a journey. So that's kind of a cool idea, right? He, it's the end of the journey. We're traveling toward this point, toward this destination, Paul says that Christ gives gifts to his people and his grace to his people so that we would all go on that journey together and arrive at the destination of unity and knowledge and maturity together as we're working together and serving together. He wants us to arrive at a destination of greater unity as we all together hold fast to the truth of the gospel And we understand that God's people can no more be separated than God himself can be divided. And as we lean into living with each other, right? Through difference, through offense, and through the many challenges that come from living in close proximity as a family. God has given grace. He's given these leaders and these teachers and these ministers to help us all do that well. To grow in unity. He also wants us to grow into maturity. As the verse continues on. The body... Metaphorically, right, in this picture, in this illustration, growing up from childhood to adulthood. That's the image here. Growing from childhood to adulthood as we all together continue to grasp and to receive and to be filled with all the fullness of God in Christ by the Spirit together. And the chief hallmark of this maturing in verses 14 through 15, the chief characteristic of it, is that we wouldn't be tossed to and fro by the waves, like a boat tossed about in the storm and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. That's the chief hallmark of this maturity, that we would be solid and anchored and grounded and not tossed back and forth, constantly changing our minds. That we would have our anchor firmly fixed in Christ and allow the truth of God's word to be the rudder of our our sailing vessel as a church. This will will preserve us, this maturity, from being carried away by, a couple things here, carried away by first, every wind of doctrine. And there's a lot we could say about this, <laughs> more, than, more than I have time to say, about the kinds of doctrines that are present now and the kind of teaching that is threatening to carry God's people away from what's true. Uh, we're aware of the deconstruction movement, people turning away from the faith once for all delivered and deconstructing and re-understanding and taking the bits that they want and leaving out the rest. God says, <laughs> hold fast, right, to the faith once for all delivered. Not hold fast to what you'd like to hold fast to, but hold fast to all I've given to you in the gospel of my son. We have the deconstruction movement, which is calling us to re-examine, to uh, re-understand, to redefine what we know to be true. There are those who deny that Christ really did suffer in our place and for our sins, and that, that a God of love wouldn't do that and punish his son for us. There are those who deny the eternal reality of those who would be separated from God in hell. That They don't really last forever there. They they, they just go away and downplay the suffering, which is dangerous because the suffering is real. It is eternal, and there is a real urgency to save the lost from that fate. There are those who would hear what we've done with the passage today and say, none of that's true. That's all a bunch of nonsense because nothing supernatural ever happens anyway. Everything around us is just stuff, right? And there's nothing more than just stuff and just material and science is, you know, what we look to. Not any of the supernatural, mythological faith stuff. We just believe in what we can see. And even that kind of attitude and mindset can infect the church. And we can lose out on the supernatural realities of our faith. Like the virgin birth. Like the resurrection. Like the new creation that awaits us. And there are those who can attack what God has said about gender. right? What he has said about roles in the church and in the household and say that what we have in Scripture is culturally conditioned, and it's not good, it's not able, it's not effective to help us live in the world we're in today. This can't govern us now. We know better than they did then. And the sufficiency of Scripture really is under attack in in these ways of doctrine that would say, God doesn't have the right and last word about our household, and what leads to human flourishing and what doesn't. We know better now. These are the winds of doctrine that can assail us and that can throw us off course if we're not firmly anchored together in the truth. We can also be led astray, Paul continues, by human cunning and kind of advancing that last idea. There's a whole array of issues right now (laughs) surrounding gender and identity and self-expression, right? That can be summed up in some way in in the letters LGBTQ. um, But in other ways, we can see human cunning come into play where you might hear an argument like, hey, you know, what we're talking about today, the Bible actually never addresses that. You know, Jesus never talked about same-sex marriage, so who are we to say? And this kind of human cunning can set in, which again, undermines the sufficiency of Scripture as deceitful arguments and different ways of looking at things are put forward to us to make us doubt or question or look elsewhere for the last word on something instead of, has God said it? And what implications are we drawing from the whole counsel of God's word? And so don't be deceived by that cunning that says, Well, Jesus never talks about it, so it must be okay. And you can fill in the blank for a whole number of things that Jesus didn't talk about. (laughs) But that's not a good way to argue. That's not a good way to hold fast to what is true. Finally, we can be taken in by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And in one way, I think we can look at this, trying to give an example, in the pressure that we have to talk like the world talks about who we are, to talk about identity, to talk about uh, what's going on around us, to talk about concepts of justice and you name it and to talk like the world talks about them, and to use worldly terminology to describe what's true and real and good, and not to use what the Bible uses, and not to use biblical terminology, and to understand ourselves and let the world set the the tone and set the pace for how we talk about what's true and right and good. We need to hold fast to what God has said and how he's said it to help us from being caught adrift and moved away from his truth very subtly over time, letting the world and the culture co-opt how we think about what, what is true. These are a couple ways we can be thrown of course. And as we hold fast to these things <laughs> on the home stretch y'all, we grow in conformity to Christ. We see this in verse 14 and 15 that as this happens as opposed to deceitful teachers, faithful shepherds of God's church preach the truth and proclaim the truth and we all together celebrate the truth and share the truth in love even with those who are outside in gentleness and in love and compassion and a desire that they would come to know the truth as well, as we all hold fast to this, we will grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Altogether, Christ intends that we would be looking more like and loving more like and living more like him. That we would all together grow up into Christ. So that every aspect of our life would be increasingly conformed and so that the church would be more and more of that special people that he, he died and he purchased for himself so that the world could look in and go, wow, <laughs> we see something different and something special about them. And one of that chief marks of that reality, of, of who we are and what he wants to do in us as we grow toward maturity is not just doctrinal purity, right? It's not just intellectual stuff. It's growing what? In love. He wants us to grow together in love as we lay hold of all that's true. The chief mark of this is to be living in his love more and more filled with love to God and love for one another as we drink more deeply of his infinite love for us. Growing in love, Christ intends to do all this in us and he can do it because nothing will stand in his way. Not even the gates of hell will prevail against him. So church, hearing these things, oh, I pray you would receive the gifts that Christ has to his church that you would be open to and humble about receiving the gifts that Christ has for you through one another that you would be eager to receive and to lay hold of all he died to give to you, all the spoils of his victory. Don't hold yourself back. Don't be stingy in your desire for the gifts, for the ministry that we can, can, can do with one another and do for one another. And second, use your gift. Use your gift, church. We're, talk, we're going into the Christmas season. Don't send your gift back. Don't leave it in the box. Use the gift he's given you. Consider yourself caught up in Christ's purposes to mature and to grow and to strengthen his church through the gifts that he's given to you, and ask him to position you for ministry, using the gifts, using the desires, using the position you have in the church for not your gain, not your uh, selfish, you know, uh, return, though it's a joy, but for the good of one another. Come to church every Sunday, come to small group, come to men's and women's meeting. come together with the intention that, yes, I will receive what I need from these people, their means of grace to me, but come eager to serve them as well, understanding yourself as both a recipient and a contributor as often as we come together. And in that way, Christ will build us up. And he won't fail to do this. And we won't fail to be built up because of who this Christ is. So let's go out hanging our hats on this confidence and giving our lives, giving ourselves to the service, to the mission, and to the upbuilding of our church even when the fruit can be hard to see, or the forces of the world around us, or even sometimes yes, the spiritual forces and the powers that are hostile still to Christ might be pressing in. If the gates of hell won't prevail against us, then what could stand in the way of our Savior's good purposes for us? Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we've we've said much today, and I just pray that in our hearts, in our minds, all together as Cross of Grace Church, you would be more vividly, more gloriously, more freshly reigning. That we would derive a confidence for our lives, for our destiny, for our church. That's not based on us or anything we can do, but it's based upon your conquering, your triumph, and your commitment to us. We ask that you would glorify yourself in us as you build us up into you and build us up in love. And we ask and pray all this in your name. Amen.